0: about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digita. Sports Digita is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digita's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained. This week, the Groundsman Conversations, and joining me, as always, are my two dear compadres. First of all, let's bring in Roger Mitchell. Roger, how are you, mate? Uh, hi, Grant. How are you? How's, the, how's Australia? Oh, mate, it's absolutely perfect. I'm here to spend time with my daughter, which has been great and... Sydney has rolled out the meteorological red carpet for me, so uh, splendid! no complaints down here. It is splendid. a glorious country in glorious weather. What else could I wish for? Also joining us, of course, is the third Musketeer himself, Charles Morgan. Hi, mate. How are you?
1: Hello, gentlemen. You uh, hear me a little bit um, husky, a little bit hoarse. I've just spent a weekend in Edinburgh at the Calcutta Cup, um, where I would say many Scotsmen went euphoric. It was quite an extraordinary occasion and brilliant to see Scotland fans smiling as they poured iron brew and whiskey all over anything they could, themselves, me, whatever they could. Very special.
0: Sounds like an absolute cracker, Gilo. Um, yeah, yeah it, was, it was a fantastic weekend of rugby, no?
1: Yeah, it, it was. I mean, my, my team Wales got absolutely gubbed, gubbed by the Irish, but deservedly so. I'm, I'm going to blame injuries, but I don't think I can really do that. Ireland looks strong. Um, but gosh, it's brilliant when you get teams that haven't necessarily been competitive, um, being competitive again. And Scotland beating England at home just reminds you the Six Nations Championship is a very, very important part of the of, so Northern European sporting calendar, both socially, because it it's is. such a shit time of year. It's a, It's something to look forward to. And just to see, genuinely, to see fans coming back. Um, Scotland's been hit very hard by COVID, obviously, in terms of restrictions from their little leader, who has perhaps made it harder than most countries to do anything that's called smiling. I think
2: the phrase is called nippy,
1: sweetie. (laughs) 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 But nippy, sweetie. Well, uh, I tell you what, the Scots were celebrating, um, it was like pent-up joy of one getting over getting one over England, which obviously is a, a national pastime where possible. But just the joy, it just fan joy, it was amazing. I don't think I've seen so much alcohol consumed in such a short period of time.
2: But well, were you up there with Andy Nickel? Did you did you, No did you take I,
1: it in I was I was sort of up there really because our good friend Gavin Hastings um has turned sixty. So um there was oh, wow. there was a little bit of a lunch party on, on the Sunday, which um, <laughs> lunch party? Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) Um, which started at 11 in the morning and um, yeah it was quite it was quite jolly I'm just I'm just just returned I got back on the train and it was a long ride home.
2: (laughs) Mm. Grant Grant just before because you know I'm not I'm not the best expert on rugby um, but I wanted to ask you if we win the Calcutta Cup another time do we get to keep it?
0: Rog, mate, I hate no. to break it to you, but no, you can't keep it. Uh, <laughs> a, it doesn't work like oh. that, I'm in the rugby.
2: Well, I mean, it's not a kind of like Lonsdale Belt thing, do we not just take it home? <laughs> the
1: best story I heard about the Calcutta Cup, which is a, a famous story, which has sort of got re, sort of unearthed again as a story, is 30 years ago, um, John Jeffrey, Scott Hastings, Dean Richards, and a, knuck, uh, a number of them played rugby down Princess Street with the old mug, as it's called. Um, and uh, it had to go to Hamilton and Inches, the venerable jewelers in Edinburgh, to be repaired. What I <laughs> what I hadn't realised is these Scotsmen and Englishmen had played rugby after the, the 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 team dinner. I think it was in 1990 after the the Calcutta Grand Slam w- after the Grand Slam win. But it was Englishmen and Scotsmen playing rugby down Princes Street together quite worse for wear. But they got it into Hamilton and Inches <laughs> by posting it through the letterbox. <laughs> it was that flat.
2: <laughs> oh, my God. So. But remember, seriously, Giles, you, you're a rugby guy. Let, let let me understand this a little bit. And I, it's a genuine question because I don't know. Um, England, in terms of population of rugby players, is huge compared to everybody else. Yep. You know, it... Could one not be saying in these days, whether it's um, five years, three years, 10 years, that they are significantly underperforming Given their catchment area, if
0: I could put it that way, Ross, you just can't help yourself, can you? You just can't. I, I think you—you
2: you, you, you thought I was going to just stay quiet here and just let this pass. I think I think you could
1: say that, but I, I don't. I don't really subscribe to it. The most successful rugby nation in the world, obviously, is is New Zealand by by some chalk, but South Africa are fairly handy, and their their pool is relatively small small compared to the rest of the this population. This is my point.
0: This is
2: my point. England th- with all those players. It's just because there's too many. Rog,
0: let me stop you. You are just being, I think they call it a (laughs) nippy-sweetie. A (laughs) nippy-sweetie.
2: Have I mean, you got an English coach? Maybe it's the English coach. That's He's Australian.
0: Problem. Charles, Who's the English on, coach? <laughs> he walks straight into the
2: Oh, that Oh, <laughs> you I mean, you don't even have an English
1: <laughs> oh, I really did. Well, hang on. I'm, bro- I'm broken. I'm broken. I'm broken. I can barely focus on either of you.
0: Well, gents, enough of this frivolity. Let's get this show back on the okay, road, okay, shall okay. we? Rog, what's, yeah. uh, what's caught your eye this week in the world of sport?
2: Uh, well, um, I, I'd like to ask you guys again, as better experts than me. We've had one hell of a week in the world of golf. Um, the this this Super League stuff, whatever you want to call it. Greg Norman, um, the Saudis and, and brackets. The Saudis are really stepping up their moves in sport now with um, with Aston Martin with with with, with everything. Um, you know, uh, Phil Nicholson came out and said you know, against the tour, these are the governing bodies, what was it,
0: obscenely uh, uh, greedy? Uh, it, was, it was obnoxious greed, Roger, obnoxious greed, he obnoxious said. Obnoxious greed. So I'm just going to pass it back to you, Grant, because,
2: you know, people know my view about the inevitability of all of this, but h- how does one
0: uh, defend what is clearly a direction this of travel This is what Roger about the direction of travel. Well, I think you're right, Rog. You know, this is the direction of travel. It's it's not just golf. Uh, it's happening in football. It's happening in a lot of these sports. This is the way. This is going. You know, it was interesting to me that it was it was Mickelson that came out with this uh, with this phrase about obnoxious greed, uh, speaking while appearing in a tournament where he was paid something like a two million dollar appearance fee. So there are there, there are clearly two sides to this, you know. Um, We've talked at length on the show about digital rights um, and the players owning their rights. You know, and a and a big part of Mickelson's argument um, was around that. You know, he was talking about how whenever he hits uh, a shot, the, the PGA Tour own the, the the footage of that shot, and so if people want to use that in a commercial or you know any kind of um, any kind of. Video product, then they have to pay the tour for that. And Mickelson was complaining that, you know they're getting paid time and time again for for the shots that he plays. And look, it, it, it's not without merit, but I think there's um, there's a middle ground here somewhere. You know, I, I'm interested. The other side of this argument, obviously, is something that uh, that Giles. It, that's it, this comes from your world, Giles. You know, I, I, we we understand the players' side of this. We don't get a response from the tour from um the administrator so I, i'd be interested giles in your opinion on this given your background No, he started
2: um, all this he's, he started paying appearance fees right left and center he's to blame
0: i I'm, i may be to blame um and
1: i i w- what i think is the real problem at the heart of all of this is that the pga tour and the european tour in particular and the LPGA and the others your asian tour of course um is that they are all player bodies first and foremost, which means that they have a duty to look after the players. Which means that there is a real problem when um, they, the, the problem stems from they have to defend the players which is just to look after the players. It's not about the good of the game. It's not about the growth of the game. It's not about anything else. So the players just get richer and richer and richer. And I do know this perhaps better than most. And I, I've worked with Phil Mickelson quite a lot over the past. And he's very charming and um, requires quite big checks to, to, to come and play golf <laughs> anywhere. So I think his his phraseology was unfortunate because obnoxious greed... Um, um covers quite a lot of constituents within the golf world unfortunately but the 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 truth is is if the tours were run for the good of the for the good of the tour for the good of the game for the good of the growth of the game then all of that marketing costs that they spend all of the investment that the tours do in good faith to grow the game to grow the audiences to grow the spectators to bring people in to watch to make the sport um more attractive and therefore more um lucrative then what you'd find is that the players are grateful for the tour because Mickelson and any of them without the tours are nothing. I, the stage, the cost of the staging of golf is colossal. And it feels a bit invidious to me that the players are whinging, particularly Phil, who owes, like so many of them, and and Grant referenced it earlier, to, to Tiger who brought the game up and brought appearance fees in in a way that had never happened before. And yes, technology now exists to allow them to have their image rights, et cetera, et cetera. But there are many sports who would give their eye teeth to have one hundredth of what golf has um, with people who are deeply talented sports people, but where there there isn't the platform. And I feel that the sport's in a a bit of an unholy mess at the moment. You've got the challenging with the Asian Tour and what Greg Norman's up to. The PGA Tour, you've got DP World Tour, this kind of rebrand of the European Tour. You've got Super Leagues being discussed. You've got players being bribed in. And it's going to be the fan who is going to go, I don't even know where to watch other than the four majors. And I can see a real you know, the calendar is is already chaotic and it's going to get worse. And I think golf has had a, a pretty good two or three years in terms of through COVID, etc. And I can see it having a bit of a some bumpy times ahead as the greed gets too much, um, the players go and get torn in different directions and we, the fans, don't know where to follow.
0: Yeah. Charles, yeah. just one more question for you though. Do, do you think there's a chance... This is a bargaining chip from the players. You know, let's talk about the digital rights. Let's talk about the millions you're making from us because we're looking um, to have a negotiation about this and we want uh, we want to meet you in the middle. We're going to hold you over a barrel about the Saudi tour. We're going to hold you over a barrel about the millions you make from our rights because this is the time. We've got an opportunity now to to put our foot in the door and maybe renegotiate a few things and get a big bigger cut of the action.
1: Well possibly the smart ones and there are some pretty smart players out there but it's interesting most of the players who are being touted around with the sort of big paychecks to come and cross the rubicon or or whatever um are the older players and the older players who probably know that they haven't got too many majors left and they're going to go well do you know what um i'll and westy lee westwood was very open about it you know he's 48 now i think He's had an amazing career. He's been world number one. He probably doesn't expect to win a major at this point, but he might, he's good enough. But he's happy in his life and he'll take the money and take it from anywhere now. But I think if I was a 25-year-old and I've got my whole career ahead, I wouldn't want to be upsetting too many apple carts because it's the tours that give me the direction of travel to establish me
2: as a player. Uh, Let let me put my Harvey Specter hat on here, Uh, because this is this is relatively easy, golf has had a good two or three years. Um, nothing to do with the tours, let's be honest. Top golf uh, and barstool rigs is the reason golf has had a good two or three years. The tours have realised that the world's uh, moving away from them and they're desperately trying to hold on to a tiger with a tail. They come up with these little social media gimmicks that are the usual half-pregnant thing that sport comes up with. The reality is, Giles, and again, Harvey Specter here, not not necessarily believing this myself, but the reality is, Giles, that people don't care about the calendar. People are saying, where's Bryson playing today? Where is um, DJ playing? Um, All right, I don't care about the name of that tournament. Uh, Let's just get them mic'd up and and, and watch them play. I find all this very funny because what you have here is the basic question, which golfers and sports people in general now are asking themselves. What value does my governing body actually add? And... Uh, for somebody at the top echelons of their sport, and and you could argue that this is the the original sin here, um, the answer is very little, because governing bodies are, by definition, redistributive. They are socialist. They spread around the value that is created by the top 3 or 4%. And the top 3 or 4% know this now. The tech is there to show them what they actually uh, generate as value. So, um, the, the, the fact about you know Phil is now spitting in the plate that made him famous I get that I'm not going to argue that one I'll, I'll leave that one aside I'll just say where we are today uh, and and frankly this is just the question what value does governing bodies uh, uh, add golf cricket rugby football and, and and you know what they can't come up with an answer that's the reality.
1: Well, I, I kind of, I know where you, I know what what you mean by that. Except, I still argue, and I've just just come back from the weekend of the ultimate blazers, the ultimate ties, the ultimate gravy and port on the ties, which is rugby union. <laughs> you still need the stage set in order to set the, the the protagonists. If you want to be cruel, the performing seals still need to have a circus tent, and the players are not going to create the circus tent. A governing body, a rights holder, someone needs to stage it. And, and Rog, critically, yes, you could argue, well, a, a billionaire could come in and mm-hmm. build a, a circus and attend to make it happen. But one thing we know about sport is that authenticity is absolutely essential, a proper binary comp- competition level. And history counts for an awful lot. And, you know, the UAE and the Middle East for a long, long time have been putting hit and giggle shite events on their <laughs> exhibition that, 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 that <laughs> no one, no one, no, no one gives a shit about because it's just famous people turning up, looking fat and hitting the ball, whether it's a tennis ball, a golf ball, or what have you. <laughs> And yet, if it's authentic, where there's it's stamped by history, it's stamped by authenticity, then that's where a, a player's worth is 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 forged. And and I feel that, particularly as we come out of COVID, fans are beginning to re-recognise the importance of authenticity. And at the moment, golf feels to me like it's hurtling towards because of the reasons you say quite rightly. And, and you're right it's always the top 15 players at any particular point that drive any tournament interest that moves around a bit but I think that with all of this competition going on and new tours coming up and players and agents in particular saying oh we can get money here there's going to be quite a lot of
2: obfuscation going on yeah. That's how I very well said great great argument Grant I've got one for you now um, you, you're our major American sports guy on on this um three musketeers uh tour circus tour that we have giles <laughs> um flores grant you, you need to
0: unpack flores
2: for the audience because this is a huge i mean huge story
0: yeah Ross, right. this is this is a huge story you know brian flores the uh, former coach of the miami dolphins was fired. um and he subsequently filed a, a big lawsuit against the NFL, uh, alleging racial discrimination in in, in hiring. Um, and look, you know, this is this is a huge thing for the NFL. I mean, it's it's a league that uh, has done well, but it's 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 had issues around race. It's had issues around um, the lack of black head coaches. Um, And uh, and this is a real a real blow for them because you know I guess the biggest problem they have in this is is a series of text messages from Bill Belichick um, who uh, who's one of if not the most high profile coach coaches in the league and uh, you know Roger Goodall, the commissioner has got a major major headache on his hands how he's going to deal with this I don't know but this really is um, this really is a grenade thrown right into the heart of the NFL no doubt. So let me ask you, Ross, do you think it's as big a story as I do? What What was your initial reaction when you saw this news break?
2: My initial reaction was this, uh, they're in trouble. Uh, we We in the last show talked about um, a perp sheet uh, and how important it is you know, when, in, the, in the context of Mason Greenwood. Um, <coughs> I, I, and I am not surprised that Goodell now is scrambling, you know, to, to use the NFL quarterback analogy. He is scrambling in the pocket now. Uh, because uh, Kaepernick um, comes back front and centre, comes back front and centre. The concussion stuff that they um, dealt with, let's say, in a very um, pragmatic way, and then a film was made about it that showed the reality. Um, Then you throw in the stuff about uh, uh, um, deliberately losing, deliberately losing, you know, because he also claims that he throwing the game um, uh, so you get a better draft pick you know uh, and, and my immediate thought goes um, right uh, so we're talking about the integrity of, of matches here and the betting market is just opening up in, in the United States Wow I, 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 and like I honestly believe this is the the biggest biggest story of the year and um, I think they're in trouble. Uh, We talked uh, so well last time about how beautiful the the NFL is and how it's been. And then you get this. This is what I keep saying about sport. You know, uh, everybody says, well, I'd love to get into sport. I'd love to manage sport. You're managing events, events that come and hit you like a, a sledgehammer in the back of the head. They came off a great weekend and now they're in a world of pain. And, 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 you know, uh, uh, that that was my first reaction. What are they going to do now? Because I, I know when you get that kind of crisis, it bounces off the walls. And uh, this is one we need to watch, Grant.
0: You know, Rog, there's there's never a good time to be trying to fight allegations of racism in sport. But now is, is a particularly bad time for the NFL to be trying <laughs> to do so. You know, we, we're at a moment in time here where it quite rightly is is the focus of an awful lot of attention in in just about every major sports league so to have these allegations surface now i think really puts the nfl on the back foot i mean they're going to have to try and fight this but it's going to be a very difficult thing for them to do because you know in 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 the cult uh, the current social climate um you know trying to fight allegations of racism is going to be a pretty tricky thing for for the NFL to do. You know that they're, they're going to have to they're going to be expected to clean house, um, and clean house quickly. And uh, you know when you when you read this stuff, um, when you read about about the allegations from Flores, there, there are plenty of stories that I've read where journalists are alle- uh, making allegations that it's sour grapes on his part because he got fired. And of course, you can understand why they're saying that, but it's a very very tricky thing. To do, and so you know, I I agree with you. I think this is this is a massive bombshell. Um, It's very very early in the piece for us to really get a handle on how this is going to play out, but it's certainly one we're going to have to watch because I think it's going to send ripples through not just the NFL um, but plenty of other major sports as well.
2: Well, let me let let me ask you this: something more related. Take NFL out of it, Giles, because one of the things that I always um, think about when we talk about sport is um, if you say sport is politics, which it is. Um, you just need to look at the IOC, FIFA, it's all politics Um, politics is about a constitution and there's three elements to a constitution there's the the executive, executive, the legislative and the judiciary Um, sports problem is that all three of those are the same body Um, nobody focuses on this enough so what you have got, and this is where I have sympathy with anybody that's running a sports organisation, even though I'm very critical of them a lot of times. Um, your main task is to make money for your members. I.e., your role is a commercial marketing role. But when shit like this happens, they all look at you to have your black hat on as as the the the, the judge at the, at the 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 court session. Um, so. Uh, These poor uh, administrators, uh, commissioners, CEOs, um, they've been asked to operate in a a a constitutional sport that is fundamentally flawed. It is set up to be suboptimal because you can't be all of those things. How can you possibly penalise and take action against your biggest marketing asset when you are asked to commercialise the game? Nobody talks about this enough. It's a rubbish constitution.
1: Yeah, and I guess so many of the sporting constitutions came from many, many decades ago, um, where commercialism was probably the least important part of, of much of, of, modern, of the sport at the time. It was there for the governance of the sport, to ensure that fair play rules were set, that rules were adapted, and that there were stages... Set so people could play. That was really the purpose of governing bodies. Then money came in and, as you say, has skewed and put an imbalance, which makes it a very, very almost impossible tightrope to walk.
2: That's what I think.
1: And and therefore, I think one of the things that was interesting when we talked to Sam Renouf way, way back when and what you are agitating for... Is that it will be new sports or sports that are thinking very carefully about that division, about what their role is, in order to try and to try and create that balance so that sports can both advance whilst at the same time. Um, protect the the commercialism. And it's really interesting. I don't know what it's like over in Italy, much more, I suspect, for obvious reasons. But And I, again, don't know in Australia. But for me, what's very weird is that we've got the grand old Olympic Games going on right now um, in in Beijing, um, the Winter Olympics, which feels um, bizarre um, for obvious reasons since the summer games were there not that long ago with the artificial snow. Um, And um, you've got sports on and I know that if I'm Austrian or, or Swiss I'd be absolutely glued to the television but it seems to be going on where the world is not paying really very much attention and if you want to look at a dinosaur um, there's a really big dinosaur lumbering around at the moment which doesn't seem to have very much connectivity with 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 the sports world I may be being harsh here and I may be Well,
2: well Giles that is a great point but l- l- les, well, there's a flippant and then a serious answer to that um, uh, have you been watching italian curling um may, maybe not um th- well i know watch... it's
1: mixed now i do know it's mixed and well
2: I'm... well well that's the point i mean like nobody, to your point uh, uh uh italian winter olympics apart from skiing doesn't really do very much but this young couple uh, of two very good looking young italians who have gone 8 nil in the curling, this is Italy curling, not Norway, not Scotland, not Canada, Italy, with two, what I would call very marketable, fresh young faces are exploding in the public awareness here in Italy. So it comes back to the same old thing, forget the IOC, they're almost irrelevant now because what is driving everything are two young kids that look a million dollars that are winning and everybody says, how do I go and play curling in Italy now? That's the reality, Giles.
0: Giles, let me ask you, is there a, a chance, um, however small, that um, they're not actually too bothered that nobody's really watching this Olympics? Are they hoping it kind of drifts away quietly without there being too much fuss about it?
1: Yeah, it's a great point. Um, I suspect there are many top sponsors, as they're called, the IOC top Um, Scale sponsors who are just willing this Olympic Games to rattle through as fast as possible because then there's Paris, then there's Los Angeles, then there's some there's some fun there's Italy as well, obviously um, hosting the next winter I think. Suddenly there's some pretty fun there's some pretty fun Olympic Games coming up where the world will celebrate like we did in London. Um, But the IOC got themselves into an unholy mess, um, and you know I, I was. Lucky enough, I, I use the word advisedly. I was in Beijing for the Olympics in two thousand eight, right the way through. I think I've said it on the on the show before. I, I've never been more aware of a sort of geopolitical mus- mu- muscle flexing uh, and sport washing than that opening ceremony in China, and I was pretty scary actually. And it's got scarier. And I don't feel that China in its wow. current current iteration. Uh, is a reflection of what Baron de Coubertin um, had in mind back in 1896 when he started the modern Olympic movement, um, and I cannot wait for the Paris Games because if anybody can give some ooh la back to, to 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 the Olympics, well put, um, it will be the French who God are God bless the French. God bless the French when they do a World Cup or an international event. Yeah,
2: yeah, they've got class.
1: They, they know, and thank God.
0: Rog, uh, we're we're obviously recording this on February the sixth or the seventh sorry um am a day out here in australia and we can't really let this day go by without uh, mentioning the anniversary of the munich air disaster in 1958 and, yeah. and, the, uh, and for the, the loss of that terrific manchester united team um you know Roger, we've, we've seen an awful lot of stuff on social media and interviews around that event um yeah it 's always a poignant time of the year but i I just wonder what you made of that this year um, with the kind of added enhancement that social media brings to an occasion like this
2: yeah uh, th- this comes around obviously every year, and I personally and I think you know this takes me right back into the camp of you guys in terms of traditional sport. I personally always stop. When you see the posts and you see, you know, the comments about uh, Bobby Charlton and, you know, why did I survive and Duncan Edwards. And it's actually quite emotional every year. Um, I, 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 but, but here's what I thought yesterday, Grant. You know, uh, uh, Munich is a huge part of the Manchester United story, the the brand, if you want to put it in modern terms. Um, just a little bit like Torino is with uh, that team that died ten years earlier, Grande Torino. Um, and you know, I'm just wondering. I'm just. I was thinking, do the Glazers even know about Munich? Could 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 they could they speak for ten minutes about Duncan Edwards? You know, do do they realise that? What they think is a a lovely juicy set of revenue streams coming globally from who knows what um, is actually based on the fact that the Busby Babes, and and I say this with a heavy heart, would have been the first British team to win uh, the European Cup, not Celtic. Um, They would have dominated English football in a dynasty type fashion. Um, England would probably have won the World Cups before 1966. Uh, Munich is so important. And, you know, I just, you see it when it comes out every year. And any true sports fan needs to take a moment... And you think about, you know, Jimmy Phillips, that assistant manager who was left with a club that was about to fold. They actually genuinely thought they couldn't make it. It was about to fold. Man United would not exist. He, with... um, just absolute determination, told the board to go and stuff it and he was going to put a team together. He called every other club in the English Football League. They all loaned players. Uh, they survived. It's now the biggest club in the world. It's owned by a family that lives in Miami. Do they even know this, Grant? And I think I know the answer.
0: Yeah, look, Roger, I, do they know about it? Of course they do. There's a there's a stop clock at the ground that... that... That they'll have to walk past that then they know about it for sure but there's absolutely no way they understand it. I mean they don't understand what this means to to the club. They don't, they don't know what it means to the city they don't know what it means to English football. There's absolutely no way they can possibly understand that because it's such a, a deep part of the history of English football um, and it's something you really only, only know and understand uh, if you've grown up in the game. you know I, I learned about it as an, at an early age. Read about it. Obviously, read the horror stories of of what happened that night, um, and uh, you know. And I learned about it in an organic way. I didn't. I didn't come in by a club and have to study its history and, you know, read the chapter on the on the Munich air disaster. So I don't think there's any way that the Glazers understand the significance of uh, of, of this anniversary.
1: And and that's maybe my point earlier when we were talking about authenticity of brands, is that many many sporting. Um, whether it's clubs or events or tournaments, have history. They have highs and they have lows. Munich is obviously the most tragic of them all in terms of how shocking it was. But it's the sense of history of highs and lows, of of the continuum of time that builds sporting events that mean they matter more. And that's the one thing that new money just can't, you can't just create it from nothing, or well, you can, but it will take years to, to seed and to, to, to push through. And I think that's a really important part of the, this commercial, as, as the, the, the commercial landscape is changing, as technology changes the way to monetize and things we talk about all the time, is there is one very, very valuable element of sport that nothing can replace, which is, is time and history.
2: Well, that's why. Uh, that's why, and we didn't plan this, but it just—it's uh, a beautiful segue. That's why our guest this week is so important, because um, Juan Arquinegas, um has just bought uh, Genoa Cricket and Football Club, Cricket and Football Club, um, one of the the, the American uh, investors that is very active now in in European soccer football. Um, our old, old mate Jerry Cardinale uh, at Bordeaux, um, the guys at Spezia, Parma, Venezia. I could go on and on. Bologna, on all and on. Um, and I've spoken to one, and and you know he has got a sense of Genoa's glorious, glorious past because Genoa, um, the, from its spelling onwards, is an English club. It is set up by English. Englishman um, who came to Italy and, and brought the game of association football to the Italian Peninsula. Uh, and, and, you know, that's why, you know, we wanted them on the show uh, to, to, talk, to talk about how they view it, because we need to give them the chance to uh, give their side of the story, why they're doing it, what are their aspirations, what are their fears, uh, how are they going to protect uh, a club, the oldest club in Italy, Genoa. Uh, so, you know, I'm really looking forward to one.
0: Well, rog, uh I guess if you are really looking forward to one, we ought to try and get you one. What do you say?
2: <laughs> Juan Arkin welcome to Are You Not Entertained? Thank you, Roger. I'm happy to be here. It's our pleasure. Of course, uh, let me introduce you to my colleague this afternoon, Giles Morgan.
1: Hi, Juan. Good to have you on the show. Really looking forward to this one. I've got a lot of questions, so stand by. <laughs> Good. Happy <laughs> to
2: answer <laughs> Juan, we always like to start by understanding the sports fan behind the the the, the business person, the personality, the financier. You're from Bogota, in Colombia, and yes. you are a serious football fan. I'm talking Santa Fe. I'm talking actually Independiente Santa Fe to give it its full name. And yes. I heard I heard you on one of um, one of your other things, and you were talking about you and your dad and going to football. Tell us a little bit about uh, how football got into your blood.
3: Yeah, yeah, I grew up in, in Bogota um, in the 80s and 90s, which obviously was um, a time in our history that inevitably tied uh, football with uh, drug cartels and drug money. So I think Colombian's relationship with football has always been mixed. Just, you know, having that, knowing that you had to support your club while knowing that there may or may not be drug money infiltrating, you know, the essence of the club was, uh, you know, was frustrating and, and conflicting. But, you know, I, I, I do remember going to games with my dad. I remember a, a famous 7 uh, 3 El Clásico that we called between Santa Fe and Millonarios, where obviously we, we won with goals from one of my favorite common players of all time. Valencia el train Valencia the train Valencia so uh, so yeah i just uh, you know I, I that that's basically the 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 top of my santa fe experience having been able to uh, to go to that game watching my my favorite player uh definitely at the time and still probably one of the top favorite players of of history for me was fantastic But, uh, you know, at the same time, our relationship, like I said, with football uh, had its ups and downs and probably hit rock bottom on that dreadful July 1994. um, I believe it was July 2nd or near there with the assassination of Andres Escobar, which was uh, an incredible player, defender. Yeah, great defender. The gentleman, I think he was called. The gentleman. That's right. The gentleman. He was uh, very calm, a great leader. Um, You know, an example for his community, he played in Atletico Nacional. His mistake that cost him his life was uh, uh, an own goal uh, in the 1994 World Cup against the United States. I believe Colombia was the only team that the United States actually beat that World Cup. They still uh, made it to the next round. Uh, And Colombia was uh, was stocked up. About a potential winner, which is you know crazy to think that that was yeah, even great team uh, a Valderrama, that whole uh, that whole generation, great yeah, team. golden generation. Uh, but you know, as a generation, that 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 was uh, uh, unfortunate to have lived in that time. And uh, you know, there was a lot of connections between the national team at the time and and the uh, Medellin cartel led by Pablo Escobar. And they, they were intertwined in a very unfortunate way, and uh, you know, it had. Uh, Terrible ramifications. We concluded with the assassination of of Andres Escobar, uh, not unrelated to Pablo Escobar, the yeah, same yeah. Last name. Um, and uh, that was just uh, you know a, a national, international embarrassment that I don't think uh, Colombia has has been able to fully shake. Uh, you know, our image has improved a lot over the years, and we're very proud of that. Um, but you know, that's that's always on people's minds, and I can't tell you how many times I've landed in countries you know like India or Malaysia or whatever and the first thing that the cab driver would say when I mentioned from Colombia if they were football fans that would be the first thing that comes to their mind which is just just unfortunate for a country that's so passionate about the sport and uh, has a team that uh, you know in recent years has had so much success but uh, anyway long, long long story of my relationship with football but clearly those dynamics make me uh, make me love the sport uh,
1: So, so Juan, but I've not been to Colombia, and I know that it's very much in the fabric of, you know, passion of, of the people notwithstanding the, the, the awful assassination. This may seem a ridiculous question, but it, uh, you'll understand why when we get later on and with what you're doing. As a young fan, if you're a young boy in Colombia and you go to a stadium, you're watching a club match, wh- what would that experience be like, say, half-time? What would you eat and drink at half-time? What's the kind of the fan experience in Colombia that may be different from Europe or from different parts of the world? Just give me a sense of that, because I, I just don't have any. Yeah.
3: We have a lot of uh, Colombian pastries, uh, which we consider delicacies, and there's hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, there's thing called uh, um, chick- uh, sorry cheese fingers would be the, the translation. Uh, they're very popular in uh, uh, stadiums, but a, a very funny one is uh, is what you guys call crackling, basically fried uh, pig skin. Love that. Uh, oh, wonderful. love that. I'm all over it. So when I was a kid, that's the, the food that I remember the most. And, uh, you know, it was it was prepared in the stadium. So, you know, the appearance of it was not necessarily the most sophisticated one. And uh, there was a joke that it always had hair embedded in it because of the uh, food making process. So the joke was that they would ask if, if uh, you you ended up having blonde or brunette hair in your crackling. Uh, <laughs> we still ate it even, even after that joke. So um, yeah, I haven't, I have to say I haven't been to El Campin uh, in a long time, but. Um, and, would, and would
1: there be big singing culture as well? Would be very much like a European, very, very reminiscent of, yeah, of big know,
3: chanting. Yeah. Frustratingly for me, it's heavily influenced by the uh, Argentinian fans. So there is a, uh, you know, I like to think that 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 our rival team is uh, has a bigger propensity for this. They they sing with an Argentinian accent uh, <laughs> certain songs because they inherited they in, inherited songs from, you know, Argentinian teams. And and I just I to this day I don't understand why anybody would do that. It's a yeah. You know, I, I like to think that something doesn't do it.
2: So Juan so uh, after that, you you decide to pack your bags and start your travels. If I'm not wrong, that takes you to France, Paris, and then to yeah. America. T- tell us a little bit when you've like gone through these different cities, different sporting uh, traditions, what you picked up, what
3: you liked, what you didn't like. Well, I think what I like the most is what the U.S. has been able to do with their sporting environment. You know, nothing's perfect, but I think they've really been able to evade the heavy violence. And and it's truly the ultimate family experience. Go to any sporting event in the United States and the way they've been able to achieve that is, is really remarkable. Uh, you see kids of all ages, you know, wearing whatever jersey in whatever section of the stadium, they can go and get snacks. There's no separations of fans from, from any corner. And I just... It baffles me that we haven't been able to achieve that in other countries. Obviously, um, the, the UK has done a, a, a tremendous job and has experienced incredible progress in that area. But, you know, it's still still not quite like the US, you know, in some games. You know, if you're wearing a certain jersey, you should stay away from certain sections or celebrating and things like that. You know, and maybe having that level of respect for the other fans is, is maybe not necessarily bad, it's maybe cultural. But, but, you know, I do see stark differences and a lot of it has to do with socioeconomic uh, dynamics in the countries. And, you know, it's, it's very much more complicated than, than just having the right security or the right mindset. Uh, but but, but that, that's what really shocked me the most once I started going to various different sporting events in the U.S., how different it was from that perspective. And with that experience, as you
1: learn sport in America, but you've also been in France, et cetera, at what point do you remember looking back, when you look at, we'll talk a little bit, what your your business is doing in Europe with, with various sports around Europe, it, do you think that in your mind the commercial model, the potential for where you see sports investment, the, the penny drop for you when you saw how it could operate within the USA, and therefore that that was perhaps something that could be replicated in the in the more traditional, the the older market of 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 Europe that that
3: was ripe for change? It depends if we were speaking about about football in Europe, because um, you know I think it's no secret that. Uh, other more traditional historic U.S. sports lend themselves much more for additional commercial space, right? There's more breaks. And that's why I think football has had a a tougher time developing uh, a a very strong commercial footing, uh, TV footing in in the U.S. There's just not much space to advertise, which as as a football fan may frustrate. Um, you know, some of us to watch some of the American sports is too too many breaks. So I think it's difficult to kind of emulate that success uh, in Europe with football because it's just the format of the game doesn't lend itself to it. But there's a lot to be learned from the U.S. in terms of commercializing uh, the sport. Uh, they make a whole thing out of it, right? Like you you, you begin at 10 a.m. watching the tailgates, the, all the shows around it. And uh, and the U.S. just has been able to figure that out much better than than you know even the Premier League, uh, although the Premier League is just a, a completely different level in it of its of its own. So, yeah, I think there's a lot to learn. I think there's some limitations, uh, physical format limitations, in order to exploit it to the to to the biggest extent possible. Um, but you know we we are definitely um, you know trying to transfer some of our opinions and knowledge all the way to the league and be just one one component. that that will hopefully impart some change fantastic let's talk a little
2: bit about uh, 777 this is a serious serious organization i think you've got about five billion in, in in assets under management at some point you guys have decided principally yourself to get involved in sport as an asset class let's talk a little bit one about why an organization like Seven 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 believes that sport is going to give a return to you and your investors?
3: Yeah, so so definitely, uh, sports leaves and breathes. You know, the floors of our organization. I I wouldn't say is necessarily because of myself that uh, that we are in this. Both co-founders Josh Wander and, and Stephen Pasco are avid sports fans, uh, and they've been interested in investing in sports. Since before 777 was was even formed, um, and, and and it's not without their support that that that, that we are where we are. But uh, but yes, we are very much serious about sports in general. As as you know, we have some presence in in, in basketball. Yeah, um, we own the London Lions in in London, and as of recently, we made an investment into the British Basketball League. Um, Which
2: in itself, we could dedicate a whole podcast to, because I believe that basketball in the UK is one of the great untapped sporting properties if done properly.
3: Yeah, yeah, and there's examples, uh, you know, in other parts of the world, like in Australia, where you know something like the initiative we're trying to spearhead has has uh, yielded fruit. But but you know, since we're here to speak about football, yeah, um, which is the, the 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 section of our business where I've been spending most of our time, um, you know, we think that there is a way to uh, properly manage football clubs and i think it just it it sounds simple and it sounds obvious but people buy football clubs for different reasons and some people are not necessarily interested in running them in the best way possible um you know i'm not saying that they have Machiavellian intentions it's just they have other priorities and they own them for different reasons we definitely own them to make sure that they run properly and they yield value but that uh, we don't believe that that necessarily has to go against the fans. And and case in point, we just did something very interesting uh, in this first transfer window, which we just dumbfounded everyone by actually doing what we said we were going to do. Uh, <laughs> I
2: can tell you sitting here in Italy that uh, it has been a hurricane of fresh air. For those that don't know, most people come into Italian football clubs and kind of like be touchy-feely for a while and try and work out what's going on. Uh, 777, I've immediately brought in um, a director of football uh, from, if I'm not mistaken, Red Bull. German uh, thinking, style of play, high pressing, uh, bring in that kind of player. And you've had an amazing window. Uh, You've brought in a huge amount of young players. You've reduced the average age of the squad. How do you find the reaction to that one? Because I I can tell you they're not used to that here. No,
3: no. Well, I can tell you what the reaction was from what I will call institutional people within Italian football. As we were making these decisions, everybody said, "Don't do it." Everybody said, "They're gonna fry you. They're gonna burn you in public. You cannot have a sporting director or a coach that is not Italian." We have nothing against Italians, but you know, why not try something different? And we uh, you know we did it, and. I, you know, I have to say, I keep being pleasantly surprised by our Genoa fans. I mean, they 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 received us with open arms. It was a huge event that we that we did in our first game. We let everybody in for free. We came in; it was a beautiful day. that I'll never forget, and very grateful with their support. But knowing that, it's it's always fragile. And as we were to about to embark in in, in what could potentially be perceived as controversial decisions, um, I was nervous that maybe they weren't going to like that. Uh, especially because you know it's no secret where we are in the in the in the table. Yeah. Um, potential consequences of that, but I think first and foremost, I think people have appreciated that we have done exactly what we said we were going to do, uh, which is rare. And 2nd they, they've liked it. I think they've welcomed. People that are trying to do things differently. I'm not saying better. I'm just saying different, um, and hopefully better. And so, so I, I just, I, I am so grateful to be honest to to our fans. Uh, I, I, have, I've seen, you know, in social media and the press, uh, very little negative reaction to uh, to our decisions. Perhaps, perhaps some healthy skepticism, but mostly actually very supportive. And I think they think we're onto something.
1: Well just um give our listeners a little bit of, of background. There'll be some who are involved in, in finance investment, others will listen and be fascinated. So you're sitting in Miami uh, as a business and you decide that you want to buy a football club in Italy. Explain to me why you decided to buy a cricket club. <laughs> and secondly, what uh, uh, and 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 did you know what cricket was as a Colombian? And secondly, why
3: did you what, genuine question, why Joanna? Yeah. No, we thought we were buying a cricket. Uh, club. And then once we realized they did mostly football, then we had to change our whole story. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, why Italy and why Genoa, first of all? Um, you know, we like I said, I grew up in the 80s in the 90s, and uh, particularly in the 90s, um, you know, Serie A was the top league in the world. They had the best players. They even had some of our top players like uh, Australia who, uh, who uh, played in in parma correct uh incredible incredible talent and interesting guy a
2: little bit crazy um, but uh, that's fine
3: that's fine maybe you need a little crazy yeah. sometimes. um and uh you know for various reasons um italy is not you know the city uh is not where where um, it used to be and then when you are going to invest in an asset there's there's you know two ways to do it growth or value Um, And we think that Italy uh, embodies what what value is. I think there's a lot of upside, and I think there's great opportunities to acquire clubs in Italy at an attractive entry point where we think the media rights can be optimized, can be improved um, with serious people owning various clubs in the league. Uh, The league can be professionalized, the governance can be improved, uh, and becomes a more attractive place for people to direct funds to uh, every stakeholder in the sport. So, for us, we we saw more upside in Italy than in other places. We saw an attractive entry point, point. Um, and in Genoa, we found you know uh, a, a club founded by by, by British people um, that forced them to uh, to wear white um, and uh, and prevented Italian people from playing in the team. But but not really the oldest team in Italy. Yeah. Um, with with um, a, an incredible history and tradition um, that kind of followed a little bit the trajectory of Syria, although you now through a longer uh, period of, of underperformance and of the city of Genoa itself. Um, so it, it all kind of converges on this notion of value. Um and, can, and and
1: particular, I'm, I'm interested in the the history and the heritage piece. Was that a very big piece for you that you felt a sporting brand, i.e., a club, needed to have that texture of fan that went back historically, that was right seated into the communities and of the people of a of a, of a part of Italy? Is that was that
3: a real a really key part of the yeah, deal? One hundred percent. Genoa is, I think, the sixth biggest city. Um, in in italy has a, a large population um, is a popular club within the city uh when you have when you have that level of tradition that get passed down family uh, to family um you know it's difficult to lose that support and that support is really the most important uh you know fabric that connects you to to your community even if you had the unfortunate outcome of you know getting relegated sometimes you see fans come even and stronger numbers to support to uh, your team to ensure you get back promoted yeah. Yeah. and 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 that just provides i think as long as you can respect it and nurture it uh, a safety net uh in in the end that's the basis of a successful football club is their their supporters and and uh, that was key for our decision for sure
2: let, let let me let me play back what I've heard you say there because you know there's a lot of people that listen to our podcast that that look at um, Americans investing in European soccer and they kind of like, you know, tut-tut, and they say, well, you know, it's never working out, is it, Palotta, um, even Comiso at Fiorentina, our old friend Jerry Cardinale in France, not Italy, but, uh, you know, struggling a little bit there. Here's what I'm hearing you saying. First of all, you believe that there's more value in European sports assets compared to America uh, because it's just so expensive there now. You're looking for a club that has got a community that that will let live through thick and thin. You're looking for a club that is underperforming, can do so much better. That's all true. But let me ask you something. I think I can understand a little bit where you think a lot of that underperformance can be changed. One is on the playing side, and you've already mentioned a little bit what you're going to do there. The other part of it, a lot of it comes down to the stadium. And, you know, we've seen over the years in Italy here, so many people try and build a stadium. We've seen Palotta not do it, Comiso's in the middle of it at Fiorentina. You're having to deal with local politicians. How are you managing that minefield in quicksand?
3: I have to say that that played a, a role in our decision making as well, the stadium, because um I forget what the ratio is right now, but if you look at the ratio of you know revenue proceeding in Serie yeah, A versus revenue proceeding in in uh, uh, the Premier League is is abysmal. Uh, and it puts teams in a, in a in a serious disadvantage versus other leagues where you are more reliant on TV revenue and you cannot exploit and 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 increase those um, recurrent revenue bases. That uh, potentially are independent from your sporting success in, in a way, especially if you again, if you can nurture your fans, and you really provide them a good experience, that they'll, they'll go to the games regardless. Um, and it puts uh, team owners in a serious disadvantage versus other leagues when you can't own and operate your own stadium. Um, it's not it's not a done deal. It's a complicated, um, especially because we also uh, have a, another stakeholder at hand, which is our 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 fellow. Sampdoria. Um, General Visa, team, Sampdoria, who also play in the stadium. So, you know, there's there's that dynamic that we have to respect and protect. Um, but we saw an avenue to actually be in a position to acquire the stadium. Um, and we've met with the mayor of, of Genoa uh, many times. He's actually an incredible, smart, uh person who lived in the us for a while so you know not only we speak the same language in terms of actual language but you know culturally i think there was a lot of um understanding uh and uh i think the city is open you know they that they, they uh, understand that uh genoa you know used to be maybe the, the richest city in in, in oh, europe yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and they need investment to grow. And he has actually a ton of interesting projects, including one that's supposed to connect Genoa to Milan uh, underground uh, in a matter of minutes, which is gonna be life-changing for Genoa if, if people could live uh, you know, by the beach in a city like uh, as beautiful as Genoa and, 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 commute and work in, in Milan. Um, so I think there's culturally and, and, and philosophically, there is the understanding that you need investment uh, in order to rehabilitate certain areas. and. Uh, the Mar, uh, um, the Marassi, where um, the stadium is. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an area in dire need of rehabilitation as well. So it's, it goes beyond just improving the experience for the fan, but actually investing in the surrounding areas, and you know, the snowball effect that that has. And so, like I said, we don't have a done deal. You know, we don't know if we'll be able to do it. But we saw an, an opportunity to be able to buy the stadium, which is crucial to our investment thesis. If if we are not able to do that, you know, it'd be a huge disappointment. But uh, we, we're very positive uh, at the moment that we'll be able to work something out and acquire it and invest in the stadium and, and try to change the, the competitive landscape a little bit uh, that puts us in a disadvantage from that perspective.
1: Well, that's a really, it's a very interesting segue. Our, our sponsor of the show, Sports Digital, is a, a fabulous technology business in, in sport, based primarily in the US, but growing internationally at a rate of knots. And we give them a question so that they feel that they're loved. And we do love Sports Digital, We, do. we really we do. do. Um, we, we, it keeps Roger in fine polo, uh, uh, sort of crewneck sweaters, as you can see, and, and keeps him solvent. Um we, they've got a great stat that of the um of the eighteen stadium or stadia in series A, there is a combined age of twelve hundred years um of them which means some of them are, are really very very old you're talking about the stadium acquisition is part of your thesis therefore that one there's the acquisition of the stadium but also that you're putting in technology to start getting that return back to start really investing in fan data fan experience fan engagement a smart state you're exactly right in order to start putting those connections together is that right at the heart of your thesis it is
3: it is uh for sure uh data in general um you know we we think of data as a not the only obviously but an incredibly crucial instrument to make decisions and you make decisions at the at the marketing level and commercial level obviously at the performance um uh, you know sports performance level and at the stadium level we've had many conversations with companies that are very sophisticated and do an amazing job in places like the us which is where it's very advanced but there's nothing we can do at the moment because we don't own the stadium so we're lining up um you know we're being advised by the one of the top stadium management firms in the world. Uh, and we're putting together a business plan. We're spending money in developing the business plan, and and that money could go to waste if we actually can't acquire the stadium. Um, but if we are, we have big plans, and absolutely data, uh, and you know, partnerships with companies that do that for a living is uh, sits at the center of it.
1: And within that, that that, that sense of of data acquisition, data mining data banking, and then being able to react to that data to start redeveloping your own commercial programme, let alone being more valuable to other investors like sponsors. How are you setting out doing that? We're seeing that we're reading all of the time that there are new businesses um, cropping up. An old sponsor of ours, um, great friends, Pumpjack Data Works, do exactly that. They aggregate the fan data. Really, across your portfolio of, of sporting investment, does this lie at the heart of it, that you think that the direct consumer model is the way to really get that monetization back
3: I think it's I think it's one of the areas and and, and before I fully answer I'll, I'll just mention that data is, is not there only to uh, you know monetize or to increase revenues uh, data is used for safety as well uh, you know login incidents being able to to attend to them quicker um, you know not only security wise but just cleaning wise uh, you know a bathroom is uh, is is not clean you know fire up uh, a request permutates through you know devices that people have and they can attend to it quickly uh so so it's it, it goes beyond that i just I, I hate when we only focus on monetization because it's all, also a little bit of tension you know fans don't want to feel like they're being monetized um so it's about improving the it's fan experience, fan the, experience. Whole experience. It's the whole is experience very and yeah, sometimes yeah. you know being identified and being able to 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 be cared to and and offer something that makes more sense and you know you generate a sale you know it can be mutually beneficial but there are there are ways that it, that, that you can benefit by giving the fan a better experience without extracting money from them. Um, Juan, but, let but, me
2: let me let me let me come in here because I don't want to lose this point about what you're saying about data and what you said about Genoa and their fan base. It is undoubtedly true that Genoa has some of the, the most loyal fans, but also some of the most demanding. You know the famous uh, scene that I don't know what, if anybody ever showed it to you. That after a particularly bad performance on the field, the players were obliged to take off their shirts, fold them, and present them to the ultras in the in the in the curva in the in the the supporters' end. And that's a great thing. It's it's the way football is. It's a tiger by the tail. But what I want to ask you is, especially in Italy, especially because the Stadia haven't allowed families. As you started this conversation, how are you going to attract this new generation of Genovese fans? How are they going? How are you going to make sure they, they support you and not Sampdoria? Um that must be a big part of your plan, no?
3: It is. It is. And uh, there's there's a few ways, but. Uh one way that is central to our uh, you know desire to do that is uh, you know direct to consumer a video interaction um, so you know we, it goes by stages but we recently launched um, Genoa TV um, you know together with some of our portfolio companies where you know we always yeah. try to synergies um, and you know it's just the first step to you know bring historic games and you know highlights and interviews uh, you know, directly to the fans, but we really want to turn that into a content creation machine that that not only creates content that it's it's quirky and unique, and it gives fans uh, exposure to things that would never have a place on like traditional TV or even like you know sporting segments of of, of news channels. Uh, but but have it be a, a two way conversation. You know, allow fans to create their own content and create ways for them to yep upload their content in this, in this app and it's not only a one-way conversation. Um, you know, we think that's a crucial way to connect with uh, with uh, younger fans and is an area that we're currently investing quite a bit of money in.
1: That, that was a question I was going to ask, actually. This whole, and something that Roger is very hot on on this podcast, is sport trying to, um, if not reinvent itself, certainly to make itself more attractive to younger audiences. Give us an insight of what the... The, the Genovese uh, younger audience, their relationship is with football, and what you have seen that you might be looking to do to to keep that interest, to keep to, to keep that retention going.
3: Yeah, I, they they love their city. They're passionate, not only about the team, but their city. Um, and you know, there's rivalries uh, with other cities, not only at the sport level, but you know, Genoa again when you were at the top of the world Venice. Uh, at some point. Yes, and 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 then you're no longer. Uh, There's this chip on your shoulder, and there's definitely a chip on their shoulder. Uh, And and, and I think chips on shoulders are great, by the way, is some of the best. Chips on
2: shoulders equals chips in the bank. That's
3: Charlie Munger. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I agree, Um, and uh, and and so I think there's that dynamic that you need to uh, you know exploit in a good way. Uh, You know, create content that resonates. Uh, with that desire uh, to to kind of get back to the heights, Um, so so th- there is that whole dynamic. You know, we're we're we've been there um, only a few months, so I can't say that I'm an expert on like John Genovese, uh, you know, dynamics and aspirations. But we're learning, we're studying, uh, we're 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 speaking with them, and uh, we're we're particularly adding capabilities at the local level, at the club level, that you know are from there, um, you know that that will have a much easier time. Uh, Understanding uh, themselves than, than me as an outsider.
2: Yeah. You said earlier, Juan, it's so true this, um, any club, whether it's Bordeaux, whether it's Leicester City, whether it's Genoa, so much of their future is dependent on the league that they're a part of. And uh, it's without doubt that the 30 years decline of Serie A is because the centre, Lega Calcio, the, the Serie A league, has been kept incredibly weak. At the centre, they've never been empowered, not the way that the Premiership has been empowered. We have now got this fascinating situation in Italy where it's almost an American league. You and your colleagues around the league that own all so many of the clubs, you almost almost be in a majority now. And, and yet, this week, we saw the president of Serie A, Di Pino, saying, I'm leaving. OK, maybe he's got a personal issue, but moving to the States. But... Um, he left saying uh, Italian football doesn't want to change. You guys are going to have to get hold of the centre at the league level and do something, aren't you, Juan?
3: We do. But, you know, I kind of want to be careful with calling it an an American-owned league because, yes, 777, an American firm, owns um, Genoa. But if you saw, we named a president that, not only is he Italian, but is from Genoa and is a very famous yes. local. And I think it's important for us to, you know, associate ourselves with local people that we can trust, that we have a lot of respect for, but not necessarily try to change the identity and to insert ourselves individually into uh, you know, the day-to-day management of the club. Uh, you know, create extensions of ourselves that are there, because if you're not there, you know, things are not gonna work well for sure. Um, but you know, kind of kind of respecting the identity, and uh, you know, we found in in Alberto sangrido someone that, that that can be that vessel for us. Um, but obviously, we we have our our intentions to to uh, to you know improve governance, uh, and it's a, from that perspective is um, it, it it was also an ingredient I have to say that that you know in a league that has had so much trouble in the past uh, that there are. Very serious people. Um, yeah, not only the Americans, by the way, but but certainly the Americans. Uh, are, you know, successful, serious uh, people that we think we can be aligned with um, to impart change. Um, but I just kind of wanted to clarify that we, you know, we don't see ourselves as. That's president. very diplomatic.
2: one. Yeah. I get that, is beautifully said d- diplomatically. But cut to the chase: you Americans are going to have to go there, and you're going to have to tell them how to run a league centrally. Because they've never done it. They, they've never cut. And that's how they've fallen behind the premiership. And and, and American sports do, do the center of the league really well. You can do it with all the diplomacy. You can do it with all the charm. Um, but at the end of the day, you guys
3: are going to have to do this. You know this. Yeah, but, but I think, you know, easier said than done, right? But I think right now we have a very great opportunity to do that, which is we need a catalyst. And a catalyst can be, you know, a big investment. And a big investment from whoever puts the money in is going to need some reassurances and some structure. Um, a little bit in the way that uh, CVC and the Liga did it, where, you know, there's some constraints yeah. about how the money needs to be spent. Sometimes you need a list like this because otherwise how do you round people together? And it has been a challenge, I think, um, to round people together and, and not only Serie A, but in other leagues to come to an agreement, centralize, abide by, you know, certain rules, perhaps new rules. Uh, but you know, money talks and and, and unfortunately the, the league is not alone in being in, in, in serious trouble as a result of COVID. Uh, and you know this these problems sometimes generate opportunities and when you marry you know, new money, new investment with certain restrictions. Uh, you know, people are more willing to uh, to, to listen, uh, and I'm I'm in I'm in hopes that uh, you know a deal can get done um, in one way or another, where the league can receive some funds, um, and uh, you know there can be new rules put in place as a result.
2: Okay, I, I'm hearing what you're saying there. I won't push you on the details of that, but I'm hearing what you're saying. That's great news uh, for me sitting in Italy. Uh, I, I'm going to throw something else in here, which I think is very specific about 777. You know, a lot of people that are, let's say, looking for an excuse to not like new investors into football, um, they say, oh, well, a fund needs a return. A fund has got to get a return in three to five years. What they don't realize is that you guys don't. 777 is a permanent capital organization. It's not a fund. Do you want to take a minute to explain to people
3: the difference? Yeah, Yeah, so, um, you know, a a traditional, no right or wrong on each model, they're just different. A traditional private equity fund, uh, you know, would raise a fund from third parties. uh, And that fund has a a life, a time period in which, you know, funds need to be deployed. uh, And then funds need to be harvested and returned to uh, investors. And there's ways that private equity funds have at times been able to solve that by, you know, rolling the investment to another fund, but that, that 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 sometimes tends to cause problems so in general uh you know there is a mandate to uh, invest and recoup and uh you know sometimes that um time frame is somewhat arbitrary and when it's time to recoup is not the best time to do it um you know what if you got relegated what if you know the they, they had a bad cycle for media rights um you know it, it also sometimes can create uh, short-termism yep. and um, you know we right or wrong we just have a different model so we don't we're not a fund we don't manage money from third parties is it's all our capital we're structured as a holding company um, and a, a, a big part of our funding model comes from um, our insurance company balance sheet which is a highly regulated balance sheet so you know the amount of capital, Available, uh, you know, to to kind of invest in certain things is limited, but but at least you know it's it's also permanent, uh, and it's a vehicle that we plan to scale. And what permanent capital means is that you have uh, infinite time horizon for your investment. You could Crucial. not yeah. sell it at all. You could sell it tomorrow. You could sell it in ten years. And we think that for football is important to have that flexibility because it allows us to be consistent with our decisions, um, and you know, make, make decisions that I think have been evident that are to set the foundation for a sustainable model that doesn't rely on, you know, expensive players that come and save you for the short term. Um, you know, that even if, if you experience bad results, that the foundations are there for the club, not to go bankrupt and to be able to, you know, persevere and, and 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 you know, get promoted and then solidify their basis, and that's what really our our um, our structure allows us to do. And I think for investing in football, it's important to be able to have that flexibility. And some of the uh, you know high net worth individuals that have bought clubs have that um ability as well not alone Um, but but i think that's what you know sometimes differentiates us and and some of those high net worth individuals to private equity funds and it's easy just to see us as a private equity fund so i always like to take the opportunity to make that clarification because especially for fans it's important to know that it's not something that someone that's just here for for the ride and then we'll 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 ditch him at some point and potentially in their worst moment Juan, just imagine a
1: scenario. I have a a very elderly great aunt who lives in Wales and perhaps she'll pass away soon and she'll have left me a fortune of many, many millions, maybe hundreds of millions of pounds. And you've been involved in the sport investment game for a little while and you've probably learnt a few tricks along the way. Give us an idea of things that you've learnt maybe that you didn't know that you now know. Um, what could you teach someone like me who might be coming in to be an investor that you ma- perhaps didn't know before when you started out on this journey?
3: Um, okay, well, the the obvious is uh, the need to be there, uh, which even as obvious as it is, we've just realized that it's even more important. You know, our, our, our intention, ourselves personally, was to, you know, attend a few games at first and, you know, never stop attending, but definitely attending um, from time to time, but you know you've seen us attend almost almost every uh, home yeah. game. You know, there's there's two ways. It's an opportunity to actually be there and speak to management, but it's, it's an opportunity to show that we're committed to the fans, and uh, I think it's been, um, you know, uh, a, a good feedback loop between you know us being received well and not showing up and then they were continuing to receive as well. So, you know, I think being there, it's important. It it does cause us some difficulty given that we're headquartered in the U.S. and it's a long trip, but we're fortunate that we have operators in Europe. Um, You know, we have a great guy called Andres Blaskis. He's one of our operating partners and he's there Monday to Friday, um, actually to Saturday or to Sunday when there's games. Uh, And he's there every single day, speaking with every single person overseeing every single thing. You know, trying to empower management as much as possible, but you need to be present. Do you know, it's so interesting that you're saying
1: that. In my former life, I ran a fairly major sponsorship portfolio around the world, and therefore that's an investment. And it's exactly the same is that there are too many sponsors, and I suspect too many investors who throw money in and then don't spend the time with the most important constituent, which is the fan, to get the feedback loop going, to get that understanding to be present, as you say, but also to be part of the furniture, to be part of the scene, not to be the... I, I would very much hope that you don't wear blazers and ties and, you know, be like fans, be like them, be like part of their passion and not some kind of... Well, um, well talk, talking one, about one that, Giles, talking
2: about that, Giles, you need to tell me, one because this is the stuff I love. When, a couple of days ago, Cagliari surprisingly wins... That must have been devastating for you. What was going on at 777? You must have been throwing bottles against walls.
3: Well, you know, it was difficult for me to do that because I had my eight month baby on my lap and I couldn't be happier that, you know, that, uh, football can do anything to you. But when you have your baby with you, um, it's a beautiful moment. So I was lucky that she was there with me to uh, carry me through that horrible moment. It was, uh, you know, it was devastating uh, because, you know, unfortunately, we're in a position where we depend a little bit on the results on, on other teams, but you know I think we still the most important is we need we need to win the games that we need to win. I think there's definitely still a good possibility that we can stay, and uh, you know you just gotta focus on that. You know football is unpredictable, and it's it's horrible to have to depend on other people and to wish other people to lose. You just you should just wish for yourself to win, and everything else will <laughs> arrange itself in the right place. Um, But now, look, it's just a game. It's happened before. It happened with with Spezia, which uh, suddenly came into great form. Um, You know, look, we just got to be better. We just got to be better. (laughs) I want to focus on it. I need to to, uh, uh, start taking my baby to uh, to Genoa, uh, just in case.
2: Listen, I'm going to end up here uh, with a little bit of... um, a little bit of an anecdote that explains to people the asset that you have bought, which is an amazing asset. Um, I've lived most of my adult life in in Italy, and I've been involved in football uh, consistently. And I always wondered why the Italians called their manager, their coach, mister, mister, you know? And uh, when Giles and I were doing the the research on this, we got the answer. Is because when Mr. Garbutt, Uh, came to your club the club that you now own as an Englishman he insisted on being called mister and to this uh, yeah and to this day in Italy any coach up and down the peninsula is referred to as mister mister and that's Genoa that is the importance of your asset to Italian football
3: there you go I didn't know that thanks for thanks for telling me that's uh that's amazing and 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 you're right that's what it is you know beyond that there's countless uh countless anecdotes about how things that happen at genoa have permutated into into you know primarily italian football but world football because now that you tell me that i think uh you know there's other countries where they call them mister i think in, uh, in in spain they also make them yeah. mister
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, given all of that, um, I'm going to say very clearly that I really do hope you stay up. But I'm also going to say this. I know that if you don't, it won't matter because you'll do what you need to do. I think Genoa is in great hands and an amazing welcome addition to Serie A. Uh, So I I will look for your result every time you're on, whether it's Saturday, Sunday or Monday. I want to thank you for coming on our little show. And being such an amazing guest, so Juan, how can people follow you? Follow seven 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 or follow Genoa? How 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 can they do that?
3: So um, definitely downloading Genoa TV app available both on uh, iPhone and Android is a great way. Um, the, we have strong presence in our YouTube channel and uh, and Instagram, where uh, you know you may see us from time to time showing up uh, while while wearing a suit and ties, drinking beer from the bottle uh which uh, which help, <laughs> i think some people have found amusing but you know in the u.s it's so normal um so um, yeah yeah I, I really hope that people get interested in what we're doing i think you know beyond just being a fan of of the club or of the sport i think being a fan of innovating and refreshing hopefully ways to do things and um i think it's a good case study to follow um i hope we can show people that we're doing um the right thing we're doing, uh, we're, we're making smart decisions, uh, and hopefully, they'll eventually have um, you know sporting results. Thank you so much. Well,
1: all the best with it! All the best. Uh, I will be now. You've got a new fan as well, he's a balding Welshman, but um, I'm very vocal and I sing well. So, you'll, you'll hear me from afar.
3: I'd love to have you both. I know, Roger, you're not too far. Yeah, um, I'd love to have you guys for a game, and uh just want to thank you for the opportunity to be here with you. Uh, it was great talking to you, and thanks for the great questions. Our pleasure, Juan. Take care and best of luck. Buona fortuna.
2: Well, Giles, that was great. Do you know,
1: do you know, that reminded me, we've had a few of these um, amazing um, interviews where, as you say, there is a sort of predilection that people think that the nasty investor is going to be some suited, booted, humorless type. What a, what a, Lovely, lovely man he is, but showed I think rather like Louis Gave yes. showed, rather like Je- rather like Jerry showed in fact, uh, Jerry Cardinal, that there are investors that are coming into into sport, who get why, and it comes from as as we we, we discovered from Juan, his own personal love of of, the, of sport in general and Colombian football in particular which means he understands the responsibility, the opportunity, but also what needs to be done. And I was so... Whilst he may not have understood about my my, uh, (laughs) mythical Welsh aunt, inheritance that I won't be getting... um, But but there we go. You never know. Um, I did get the sense that they, they get why, and I was very, very touched and moved, if that's the right expression, that they are present, because that is the only way that you get in anywhere close to the fans is by proving your, your value and your, your, your worth with emotional investment as well as just.
2: Yeah. Fans. Well said, uh, captain. Well said. So listen, that brings us to the end of the show. Um, it's been a lovely show. We, we had uh, grant at the start and we, we, I think we you know we did a good segue into uh, presenting one as exactly as you say, somebody that, that, that gets uh, the Busby babes and gets the importance of tradition and he certainly has got a traditional club there. So listen, um, let's wind it up. As always, if you want to follow us and you're not already doing it, uh, we are on Twitter at entertainedr, that's the word R. And you can find me, Giles Morgan, at Giles Morgan 71 And as always, you can find me at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in
1: the lake, Rog. I love that show, and it's lovely to be back, being a groundsman with a lawnmower, rake and all the rest of it. Can't wait for the next show.
2: Absolutely. Bye-bye.